0: Welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, episode thirteen, the unlucky one. Happy New Year. I hope you had a fantastic Christmas. If you missed my last episode of the year, episode 12, are you noticing the pattern? Which was with Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs. Make sure you go back and listen to that now. And if you're listening for the first time ever, please make sure to subscribe. Which you can do at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Eddie's Discount, Podcast Shack, and other places. There's, in fact, a full list on the website for this podcast, which is at podcast.charlescwcook.com. Now, there is drama today in Washington, D.C. As I speak, the House of Representatives remains unable to choose a Speaker of the House. The presumed shoe in for that role Kevin McCarthy, who was so confident that he'd be elected that he actually moved into the office, has faced much stiffer than expected resistance from a group of around 20 Republicans, who have now refused to give him the job, I think, six times. And from what I can see... This group of 20 is being guided by a heady combination of lofty goals and cynically self-interested goals. But whatever their motivation, they have managed to grind things to a halt. And you know what? That's fine. Personally, I don't think it matters that much who is the Speaker of the House. What matters is how many members of each party there are and what those members believe. Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan, pick anyone, and the fundamentals will not change much. If I were in the House, God forbid, I'd probably back McCarthy and get on with it. But my goodness me. The freak-out here is just absolutely absurd. Now, as you all know, I am about as big a champion of the role of Congress in our system as you'll find. As a rule, as a habit, I dislike the executive branch. And I like the legislative branch. Which, per the American Constitution is where most of the federal power, and I say federal power there deliberately because most of the power per se is supposed to lie with the states. Most of the federal power is supposed to lie in Congress. And as a result, I think it is a terrible, terrible thing that over the last century, the legislature has slowly abdicated its responsibilities and in most cases, handed them over to the president, who, as a result, has become a sort of elected king. That's not how our system was designed, and it's not how it works best either. But that's an almost entirely separate question from whether or not the House can afford to spend a few days arguing about who should be the next speaker. Which, it can. If anything, we need more of this in the House. More debate. More discussions about the rules. More arguments over first principles. Again, on balance... I'd probably vote for McCarthy and move on. But that's not the point. The point is that not enough legislators wanted to do that. And when not enough legislators want to do something, that something doesn't happen. Over at the Bulwark, Joe Perticone, I think that's how you pronounce it, has written a genuinely hysterical piece in which he warns that the delay that we are seeing is a threat to national security and that it represents a sort of shadow shutdown. Perticone complains that members of Congress are unable even to view classified documents. He quotes Ted Lieu, who has said that we can't conduct any oversight that the chaos on the Republican side, that's a quote, is having real consequences for the country. He parrots Jerry Nadler, who has said, if God forbid there was a crisis, we couldn't respond to it in any way. What? This sort of thinking is of a piece with the people who complain that if the president goes and plays golf for a while... Nobody's running the country. As if members of the federal government are obliged to sit at a set of analog controls at all times and to make sure that the earth doesn't crash. Yes, it would be a problem if this went on for too long. No, a few days doesn't matter. The House of Representatives spends more than half of the year in recess. It just passed a $1.7 trillion, with a T, spending bill that will last until September 2023. If, to use Jerry Nadler's words, God forbid there was a crisis, the House would have no problem responding to that crisis extremely quickly. Quite obviously, a House of Representatives that was obliged to pass bills responding to a genuine emergency would also be a House of Representatives that could choose a Speaker, even if on just a temporary basis. Likewise, if there was a disaster that required the line of succession to be fully in place, which at the moment it's not. As for oversight... Ted Lieu is going to move seamlessly from his current complaint, which is that the House cannot conduct oversight, to his next complaint, which is that the House is abusing its oversight powers and that it's asking questions of the wrong people. The whole thing is just too frivolous for words. Our current problems with the separation of powers, and they're real, are not the result of senators going on vacation or of the House taking too long to determine how it wishes to run itself, our current problems with the separation of powers are the product of a total unwillingness on the part of our elected representatives to fulfil the roles for which they've been chosen. In the modern era, Congress spends its time writing bills full of sentences such as the Secretary shall, or in the judgment of the President. In the modern era, members of the House and the Senate go on TV and complain about the decisions that the bureaucracy is making, instead of changing the laws that bind that bureaucracy. In the modern era, federal legislators are more interested in getting their way politically than they are in upholding the prerogatives of their branch. That's the problem. Not that it's taking a while to choose the next speaker. My colleague Dominic Pino put it well this week, I think. He wrote, I think Congress doesn't have enough infighting right now, and it should have more. Conservatives often complain about Congress being too leadership-driven, with members of the majority party often expected to instantly fall in line behind the Speaker on legislation. If that's the case, then members should care a lot about who the Speaker is, and the election of the Speaker should not just automatically go to whomever is next in line if an insufficient number of members think he or she deserves it. Dominic continued, We've had too much of Congress pretending to be a Parliament in recent years, with the executive handing down orders and his party expected to enact them into law, or the Speaker acting like a Prime Minister and demanding total conformity to the party line. In this country, the Executive is part of a different branch of government and is supposed to have an adversarial relationship with the Legislature, and the Speaker is simply an elected Officer of the Chamber. It's not the end of the world if a Legislative Chamber takes a few days or weeks or months if needed to elect an Officer. I think what Dominic's written there is self-evidently correct. And I think it's self-evidently correct, even if, like me, you'd think that McCarthy would probably be the best person for the job, or even if you don't particularly care. Not everything is a catastrophe deserving of breathless coverage and overexcited what-ifs. This, too, will work itself out. It'll work itself out without the participants being told that they're endangering national security. It'll work itself out without the participants being told that they are playing with fire in case of a crisis. It'll work itself out without the participants being told that they are endangering oversight. We have a new house after a national election, and that house is undecided, on who should be its leader it should take the time that it needs and rest assured that in a couple of months everyone will have forgotten that this ever happened and they'll quickly go back to reporting the next republic ending disaster apparently looming on the horizon And my guests today are Andy Kaplan and Steve Peiris, who respectively are a cardiac electrophysiologist and a neurosurgeon. Andy and Steve, welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Thank you, Charlie. It's good to be here.
1: Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate the invite.
0: All right. So for anyone who doesn't know... Earlier this week, there was a terrible incident during a Monday night football game between the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati Bengals, in which Bills safety DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the field. Uh, Hamlin was attended to on the field, and then he was rushed to a nearby hospital where he was until a few minutes before we started recording, at least, intubated and unconscious. But... In the last few minutes, we've actually had some great news. The Bills have announced that Hamlin is neurologically intact. That's their phrase. And some sports reporters have related that he woke up and communicated in writing a desire to know who won the game. So for now, Touchwood is looking as if the news could be good. But I want to dig in a bit to what happened in a statement The Bills announced that Hamlin had suffered a cardiac arrest, which, if correct, would be the first time that this has ever happened in the history of football. Um, I've seen in the last few days some people pointing out there was a player in 1971 named Chuck Hughes who died on the field while playing for the Detroit Lions. But I looked up that case and Hughes had a heart attack and as it turned out, undiagnosed arteriosclerosis. And from what I understand, a heart attack is not the same thing as a cardiac arrest. So for for the layman among us who see these phrases thrown around, conflated, mixed together, confused, Andy, can you explain what a cardiac arrest is and what the difference is between a cardiac arrest, such as the one that the bills say DeMar Hamlin had, and a heart attack?
2: Absolutely. The heart at its basic essence is a pump that helps to circulate the blood and that pump action is driven by electrical impulses that run through the heart to stimulate the muscle. A cardiac arrest occurs when some rhythm disturbance interrupts the normal function of the heart, causing it to stop pumping and circulating the blood. And this results in rapid loss of consciousness due to a lack of blood and oxygen flow to the brain. On the other hand, a heart attack is when there is actual damage to the heart. And this occurs most commonly when a coronary artery becomes obstructed, and that deprives a certain segment of the heart muscle of necessary oxygen and nutrients, and therefore that muscle dies and becomes permanently damaged.
0: Okay, so... The the theory here, at least, is that DeMar Hamlin had a a cardiac arrest. Let's suppose, sticking with you for a moment, Andy, let's suppose this had happened to an amateur player, or, or anyone for that matter, at a relatively remote field without a medical team present. What is the likely consequence for someone in that situation?
2: Unfortunately, the brain has very little reserve, and I'm sure uh, that uh, Stephen can address that. But basically, if circulation is not restored to the body and the brain within the course of several minutes, there's permanent damage and death that comes out of it. So it's important to try to restore circulation as quickly as possible typically through CPR and then through defibrillation of the heart if necessary. Okay, so I want to come back to CPR and AED
0: and other sorts of defibrillation. But first, uh, Steve, so today, and I understand I'm asking you to speculate here, we're just going on what we're being told. But today, uh, just now, in fact, uh, we learned that Hamlin is, per his team, neurologically intact and that he's writing notes on a piece of paper when he's conscious what does that tell us about how fast the team got to him after the cardiac arrest?
1: Well, first, I'll say this is absolutely fantastic news. I am you know, just was notified by this news from you, um, so I haven't even been able to verify it, but it is uh, incredibly important. Uh, the brain basically takes one-fifth of every heartbeat, even though it's an organ that is not one-fifth of your body weight. It is incredibly uh, metabolically needy, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, It requires a lot of oxygenation to keep the neurons functioning. There are several layers to it, but the neurons are very densely interconnected. And the fact that he can hear a word, meaning that it transmits through the ears, through the the nerves, which are basically peripheral nerves within the cranium, otherwise called cranial nerves. Processed in a the brainstem, they go up to a relay center, they make it out to the cortex, and then the cortex can send another signal through the relay center out into the arms and fingers to write a sentence shows a tremendous amount of uh, reserve for his brain, and that's a very important site. You know, the basic neurological examination, you mentioned neurologically intact, is basically that he does not have focal neurologic deficits and a basic examination you would do on somebody right after they take the breathing tube out would be to ask them questions, see if they respond appropriately that tests their cognition and, and basically the higher uh, cerebral functions of the brain. And they do some basic tests of what we call the cranial nerves and they involve, you know, testing of the eyes, uh, you know, a a few different organs around the face and then uh, the arms and legs. And if they can move uh, to command um, implies a a very good function. Now, again, I think if you get into a deep dive into his examination, he's probably not completely normal at this point. However, with rehabilitation and given his uh, youth and overall good health, he has a very good prognosis for recovery. And I I think one of the keys that people need to understand when you compare outcomes of cardiac arrest, when you look at it on, on Google... Uh, many people go to dr. Google to, to kind of get their information. Um, but the vast majority, and Andy can speak on this a little bit more of those patients are very different organisms than Demar Hamlin. And uh, Demar Hamlin is in incredible shape. He has uh, his pre-morbid condition is uh, extremely robust, and therefore a uh, much better chance of having a good recovery. Than many other patients who have a cardiac arrest from other causes, which are typically more, you know, higher up in age. They have obesity, diabetes, you know, otherwise high blood pressure, other uh, vascular disease issues. And the fact that Demar also is used to training at a high level, his tissues are used to a little bit more anaerobic activity from the intense workouts and playing in the games, and so his body's also set up to handle the physiologic stress of a cardiac arrest better than the general population.
0: All right. So I want to move on soon uh, to talking about some of the the broad takeaways that we've heard in the press and in our politics. But before we get that, I just wanted to find a few more terms for laymen such as myself. Andy, what is AED? We're told that Damar Hamlin had aed administered and what is the difference between aed and other defibrillators and cpr
2: a defibrillator is a medical instrument that is able to deliver electrical shocks to the chest and thereby to the heart and uh it initially was developed as an external pack that I think we've all seen on television where they used paddles applied to the chest to shock the heart. Now we use patches. And that has subsequently been developed in an implantable form, which first became available in 1985, so that people who either have experienced sudden death or at risk of sudden death can undergo an implantation of these defibrillators that will work automatically to shock their heart rhythm back to normal as needed. The next uh, development in that was the AED, which stands for Automatic External Defibrillator. So this is basically a defibrillator with artificial intelligence and a computer built into it so that when the patches are applied to the chest, the system can automatically interpret what the rhythm is and then tell a bystander whether or not to administer a shock to the patient. So this is good in the uh, lay use because nobody has to be trained at all medically. The devices come with an illustrated picture that shows where to put the chest on, and it's a matter of basically pressing a button to turn the system on and then pressing another button to deliver a shock if needed. Okay, so we've seen reactions
0: to this that, given the way the press works, of course, uh, seem, to me at least, to be beyond the evidence that is on offer. And one of those reactions is that football is too violent, it's too gladiatorial, that this was inevitable. Another of those reactions is that this is the result of the COVID-19 vaccine or the COVID-19 boosters. I want to take them one by one. So the phrase I'd never heard of that has popped up all week is, uh, and correct me if I'm saying this incorrectly, is commotio cordis. And the theory here is that DeMar Hamlin was hit in the chest with such force and at an exact point in time that interrupted his heartbeat, and that this led him to go into cardiac arrest. So first off, Andy, can you explain Comercio Cordis? And then perhaps tell us whether or not you think that this is the sort of thing that could be prevented, or whether this is just a statistically freak accident that you're going to get, you know, after 100 years of playing
2: football at all levels in front of cameras? Cardiac arrest is most commonly related to a rhythm problem that we call ventricular fibrillation, where the electrical signals in the heart become completely disorganized. Commodial cortis is a situation in which sudden blunt trauma to the chest results in triggering ventricular fibrillation and sudden death. And this has actually been... Known as a phenomenon for several hundred years, but primarily in the last several decades, we've seen it in association with uh, sporting events and especially in young people. Typically, we think of commotio cordis as occurring uh, related to baseball players getting hit in the chest with a ball or hockey players getting hit in the chest with a puck. So it's typically some object that results in trauma, but it certainly can occur uh, in a variety of different circumstances, such as the one that most likely occurred with Mr. Hamlin, where he was hit with shoulder pads to the chest uh, at an unfortunately poorly timed uh, relationship to his heartbeat. Well, how poorly timed? I mean, I
0: read somewhere that, that the window is 20 milliseconds. So I, I don't know how to parse this statistically, but is this a sort of thing that you could ever prevent or is this going to happen in contact sports at some point?
2: Well, it's obviously going to be a rare event if you consider that a uh, heartbeat is 1,000 uh, milliseconds from one to the next and the total duration of a heartbeat itself is really uh, about uh, 80 to 100 milliseconds and then the resetting of that is another 200 to 400 milliseconds. Uh, A window of 20 milliseconds is very small and it has to be extremely perfectly timed when the heart is in the process of resetting after the prior beat. So if you uh, take anybody and subject them to hits to the chest the likelihood of having that timing is very low and then you factor in on top of that that you have to have a certain velocity for that trauma to occur and a certain orientation relative to where the heart is located in the chest and it's going to become an extremely rare event but certainly is is well described and there are similar sorts of situations that occur probably at least once a year or more around the world. Hey Steve, so that,
0: that sounds pretty rare. What is less rare are the conditions that are usually criticized in football. And I've seen some people say, look, this particular incident with Damar Hamlin may have been a freak occurrence, but that we know that football is violent and that the brain injuries whether that's concussion or CTE, are stacking up. What, what do you think of those criticisms? Is is that true? Is there anything we can do about it? Is it avoidable?
1: So another very uh, timely question. Uh, truthfully, I think we'd probably need almost an entire podcast to discuss the nuances of concussions and CTE. I did my training in Pittsburgh, uh, where much of the concussion research uh, was started, and I'm very friendly with some of my mentors who just designed what's called the impact test, which was very uh, popular as a fantastic method for determining, uh, basically, many of the nuances of cognition, not only were the people taking the test get the questions right, but also how quickly did it take them to get the questions right? And how smoothly were their movements uh, when answering the questions, when using a computer mouse? Um, There's so many nuances uh, to concussions and brain function, not even to mention all the uh, underlying genetic factors. Uh, There's a whole world that we're just kind of getting awoken to called epigenetics, where people might have a genetic predisposition to a certain condition, but then certain environmental influences will determine on whether or not that condition gets expressed. Um, and so some people just unfortunately have a little bit more predilection for having concussions and then CTE. Uh, is it the repetitive small head traumas of, of linemen? Is it the high speed collisions of uh, the, the skilled players? And this is not unique to football. Uh, this is something that occurs in soccer with uh, some frequency, not only with heading the ball, but also some of the tackles and people jarring around. And, and that's another major feature with head injury that I think that most people don't recognize is that the majority of head injuries are really with the brain kind of sloshing around the inner confines of the skull. Uh, the skull itself is, is evolutionarily set in a way that a lot of the forces and the vectors of the force get. Distributed through the skull. And it's the velocity change of the brain moving, hitting against the inside of the skull that leads to many of these uh, brain injuries. Again, this is an evolving world. There is absolutely no concrete diagnostic test that can tell if you've had a concussion or not, despite all the comments on Twitter. Everything is based on your impression of the injury and what the patient tells you they are feeling there is no imaging study there is no blood test there is nothing concrete that says you have had a concussion or you have not had a concussion and that would make this field so difficult to treat and how to properly manage
0: steve you're not suggesting to me that people on twitter are speaking without the requisite knowledge or judgment are you All right, so the second, and this is a nice segue, perhaps, uh, to the second takeaway, if we can call it that, that people have offered up, which is that the uh, incident clearly shows that the COVID-19 vaccine is not only useless, but it's dangerous. Um, Charlie Kirk of Turning Points USA implied that athletes since the advent of the COVID-19 vaccine are dropping like flies. All over the place. He didn't provide any names, of course. And others have danced around this. Um, Is there anything to this, or is this postdoc go prop to Andy?
2: I think it really is uh, a fallacy in terms of logic and thinking. We do know that viruses, including COVID, can cause a condition called myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle. And that some people with myocarditis may develop rhythm problems, but that typically occurs while they're having the symptoms related to myocarditis. On the other hand, I'm sure Stephen uh, heard this during his training experience as well as me, which is when you hear hoofbeats, think of horses and not of zebras. Here we have a clear-cut rhythm problem which occurred in a well-conditioned athlete and a probable triggering event of getting hit in the chest. And so I don't think we need to delve too far into thinking that his cardiac arrest was related to COVID or COVID vaccine or anything of the like. Uh, And we do know from review of the literature, including studies that have come out within the last year, that the incidence of inflammation of the heart occurs much more frequently with the virus itself than it has in relationship to having received the vaccine. So I, I think it's it's bad policy for people to be putting out this sort of nonsense into the mainstream for consumption by the general public.
0: Steve, you see any link between the vaccine and this sort of incident?
2: Absolutely not.
0: All right, so my, my final question is, To what extent Damar Hamlin was fortunate to be in a stadium that had a full team, a full set of equipment. I I already asked about the timing and this has happened to me in the middle of a a field in the middle of nowhere. But the original report was that the resuscitation uh, took nine minutes. The Bills... Press release today said that it took one minute. So I wonder, um, first Andy, in relation to the heart, and then Steve, in relation to the brain, if you could just talk me through to what extent a one minute or a nine minute or a 20 minute difference would affect the the outcome here. What, what should people expect as time passes in this sort of circumstance?
2: The shorter the time in terms of a cardiac arrest and lack of circulation uh, and its restoration, the better off the prognosis. We know that for every minute that goes by without restoring the circulation, the mortality increases by 4%. The key in terms of the immediate response is initiation of compression-only CPR, which the anybody in the public can do in any sort of situation. So maintaining some degree of circulation pending, the institution of the next level of treatment, which includes oxygen and defibrillation, are important. And those are most helpful. And then uh, I think that's why we're seeing... AEDs available and charts showing how to do CPR available in airports, in uh, gyms, and more and more being brought out onto sports fields uh, at all levels from uh, Little League on up. And I think that's very important. The other advantage that DeMar had was in terms of having a world-class uh, healthcare system and hospital available to him within minutes where once he got there, he could undergo institution of what's called hypothermia protocol, where they chill the body down to between around 89 to 93 degrees Fahrenheit or 32 to 34 degrees centigrade. And this allows, again, preservation and improvement in brain function that Stephen can speak to. But typically, hypothermia Is utilized for 12 to 24 hours, after which time you rewarm the patient and then are able to reevaluate their neurologic function. So he had the perfect setting of having people available who could rapidly institute CPR rapidly defibrillate with an AED, and then ability to be rapidly transported just a couple of miles away where he could receive state-of-the-art care. And I think that the result that we're seeing is uh, hopefully a very good outcome with full recovery of neurologic function and uh, all that goes with that. Steve?
1: Yeah, I would second um, you know everything that Andy had said. I I don't know any of the particulars of how he was treated. Um, Hypothermia is a uh, treatment utilized to try to slow down uh, metabolic activity. It hasn't been as wonderful in some uh, disease processes that affect brain function as with others. Um, And not only that, but there's also medications that can be utilized to sedate the brain and help to minimize Uh, you know, as I mentioned back at my first answer to your question, one fifth of every heartbeat goes to the brain. It's a highly metabolically active organ. And so sometimes there are also medications that are given to slow down that metabolism that basically in layman's terms flatline, uh, on an EEG to settle down the amount of oxygen that the brain needs and help during the recovery as his vitals stabilized quickly. That's very important. But there's also a point after what you call an, an ischemic or lack of blood flow, uh, ischemic insult that can cause the brain to rapidly swell afterwards. And that was also part of the key for his recovery, uh, that A, timing of restoring the heartbeat so that he can get oxygenation to the brain is critical, as well as trying to minimize potential brain swelling. And um, he was in a you know the university of cincinnati is very well known to be a a world-class institution uh, across many medical specialties
0: this of course doesn't matter in any cosmic sense but just from a purely medical point of view is it possible to suffer this sort of traumatic event and return to playing or is this almost certainly the end of his playing career if he makes a full recovery
2: uh, I don't see any reason why he couldn't uh make a full recovery and go back to playing uh, again it, I think he will have to undergo diagnostic testing to make sure that there aren't any other cardiac issues uh We're presuming that it was commotio cordis that caused this uh arrest to occur, but we also know that there are athletes who have other uh causes for rhythm problems uh either increased growth of the muscle tissue uh, or weakness of heart muscle tissue or genetically related rhythm problems. And I think he'll require a full screening and evaluation uh, to make sure that he has a structurally normal heart and no other genetic abnormalities, which could predispose him to rhythm problems. If those things are excluded, then I really don't see any reason why he could not return to playing. I certainly wouldn't count on him being there for the playoffs this year, but <laughs> presuming he uh, that things go his way, he could be back by next season.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much to Andy Kaplan and to Steve Perris for joining me on the show. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thank you, Charlie. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening to the first episode of The New Year. I hope you all have a lovely weekend. I am off to get ready for the Jaguars showdown week 18 game against the Tennessee Titans. And I will say no more than that, lest I curse the team as I have on so many other occasions in my selective and burdensome role as master of the universe for sports that I personally care about. See you next week.